I am really invested in decentering the place of the United States in the narrative of Islam in the Americas. Um, it is not about the U.S. Like studying Islam in the in the Americas is not just about the U.S. and the contemporary United States. It's bigger, and it's older. I'm Cole Simon, an intern at the Institute for the Humanities at the University of Michigan, and that was Dr. Aliyah Khan. Dr. Khan is an associate professor of English and African American and African Studies, as well as the director of the Global Islamic Studies Center at the University of Michigan. Her research explores the history, literature, and music of enslaved African and indentured South Asian Indian Muslims in the Caribbean. This week, Abdul Kazido was able to interview Dr. Khan and talk about why her research matters today. Now we ask, why should you care? Okay, so I am sitting down with Dr. Aliyah Khan, who I had the privilege of taking a class with last semester. She is a professor here at the University of Michigan. She teaches a diversity of courses. And I was lucky to take the African, Afro-American African Diaspora Studies course. And I learned a lot about the Caribbean, Muslim identity, and Haiti, stuff that I didn't know about, stuff that we don't get to talk about in the real world. And today I'm going to be talking to her about her experience as a researcher and about her research and why we should all be paying attention to it. So, Dr. Khan, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty well, given our current circumstances. It's really nice to talk to you again. I miss having you in my classes. <laughs> I appreciate that. I appreciate that. So, my first question is, how did you end up a researcher slash a professor? Mm -hmm. So I have been at the University of Michigan for about eight years. Um, sometimes I, lo I lose track. Um, and this is my first job out of grad school. I attended grad school at the University of California, Santa Cruz. Um, but as you know, uh, my first book, Far From Mecca, Globalizing the Muslim Caribbean, it's work that exists at the intersection of Muslim and Islamic studies, as well as Caribbean studies, which is not two fields that people usually think about as in conversation with each other. Like when you think Caribbean, you usually think like tourism, or you, you definitely don't think like Muslims. Um, but my family, um, and I was born in Guyana myself, and my family is um, mostly Muslim, not all, but like mostly Muslim. So that's my own background. And in a sense, like I wrote a book that is about my own background and my own heritage, because in some ways I just wanted to understand it myself. There is not very much written on the Muslim and Islamic Caribbean. Um, usually when anybody who knows anything about that subject, they tend to think of mostly um, the descendants of Indian indentured laborers from the 19th century in the Caribbean, who some of whom were Muslim, majority was Hindu. So they usually think about that group when they think about Caribbean Muslims. But, and that is, you know, my family story. But what I wanted to think about too was the people, the Muslims who preceded them, enslaved African Muslims, right? And establish a genealogy and a lineage of Islam and Muslims in the English speaking Caribbean. So the work is personal, it's also political, right? Because it has like in thinking about, you know, the descendants of enslaved African Muslims and the descendants of Indian Muslim indentured laborers together, I'm making a really, a really, I'm making a, um, like a really significant political move for the countries in which those demographic populations are relevant, which are primarily Trinidad and Guyana. Because after independence from England, those countries have, 
you know, had a lot of political strife with people from those ethnic groups and like conflict with each other that sometimes turns very violent. So in part, I think of my work as reparative, you know, in a way like getting those two populations to think about their shared labor histories, as well as their shared religious histories in pursuit of the vision of, you know, a united, um, united people for the present. Interesting. So you started out by majoring in in English. How? Why did you major in English? What were you hoping to to to, to do with that at the time? Um, I guess you mean as an undergraduate. As an undergraduate. Yeah. So I attended a commuter school. Like I was a fairly recent immigrant in um, New York City, and I attended a commuter school, Hunter College, City University of New York. Um, I majored in English and political science, actually, um, both of them. And I couldn't decide if I wanted to do something that related to like being a writer, because that's something that I always really liked, or I wanted to do, or like I wanted to be a lawyer. <laughs> um, and eventually I decided to just pursue a PhD in English because I, I started teaching actually at Hunter College. And I understood that I really enjoyed teaching and I wanted to try to figure out um, like how to make it a career and then also how to pursue the things that I was interested in studying. I thought it would, it, it felt like, like I did a political internship and like going down the path of like being a professor felt like it was more wholesome for my soul than the things that I experienced, um, you know, like when I was thinking about what it would mean for me to be a lawyer. Why, why not be a lawyer? And, and how is it that the stuff that you were interested in doing, how is it that writing or telling stories was a part of that process? And how did like being a professor help you like amplify that work or slash researcher? Um, I've always been interested in telling the stories of people who I feel their stories have not been told or whose stories have been like elided or buried, um, particularly in the colonial era. Um, and, you know, of course, my context, because I was born into it, is, is the Caribbean. Um, I also take my inspiration um, from uh, the African, Af African-American, Afro-Caribbean feminist, Audre Lorde, who's, you know, she coined the term biomythography, which in her writing means the idea of telling the story of a people whose story has not been told or whose story has been made invisible through, te through telling your own personal individual story, right? She, she thinks that you, or she thought that you could tell your community story um, by telling your own personal story. So that my, my um, academic work tends to be a little bit maybe different from some of the more traditional um, literary analyses in my field of English, it's, it jumps around methodologically from discipline to discipline. I do, for example, yes, of course I do serious literary analysis, that's my primary field, but I also incorporate a fair amount of like personal narrative because I feel like it's really important to say exactly the point of view. Foucault calls it the locus of enunciation that you are speaking from. Um, and what your personal investment is in the work, because I always think that, um, you know, like there is no such thing as objective academic scholarship, right? When you say that it's objective, you're usually defaulting to whatever the norms are um, of the dominant group. So, um, yeah, I think, I think 
that that describes why um, you know, like my field is the, like the kind of work that I do is 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 what I want to do. And yes, I do think it ended up being more fulfilling than becoming a lawyer. What is the most interesting slash important thing that you found in the things that you've been doing research? Yeah, I'll say two things. One of them is about like the content of the work. Mm -hmm. And the other one is about the methodology of the work. So the first thing about the content of the work is that it, I was awed and amazed at how many, at at just like when, when, when I started thinking in saved Africans in the Caribbean, I knew that one thing that distinguished them was their literacy. Um, And that is something that I focus on in the book. Um, because of course, that's not something that we think about when we think about enslaved people in the Americas, right? There's this dominant narrative of like, oh, that that is very, it, you know, that is very old, this dominant narrative that like, oh, they were just sort of plucked um, from the quote unquote dark continent of Africa with like no, no culture that could yeah. be viewed as like civilized in any kind of way, which is just completely untrue. Um, there's also a perception too that for the, mo- that, you know, they were all, um, they were all polytheists or all animists or so on. And that's not true. You know, like historians estimate that maybe as much as 10% of enslaved Africans, just because of where they were from, like West Africa, these like huge West African Muslim countries had to have been Muslim. So um, I was, yeah, that's one thing I found really, really interesting, which is that the sheer numbers of people who were enslaved, who had to have been Muslim just because of where they're from. And then also how very literate they are because they were educated in like, you know, the from the medieval era to the present, these Islamic schools um, that were famous in places like Mali and, and, and so on, right? They're highly educated people in both like, um, you know, like secular as well as their Islamic traditions. And that's just not something you think about when you think about enslaved people in the Americas. So that, and then methodologically, like what I told you before, like um, I was really able to incorporate my own personal narrative and like personal place in the history of the region that I'm telling, whose story I'm telling into the book. Like I really tried to do that. So that's a little different maybe from from your average literary analysis. Yeah, as a, as, a, as a person who took one of your classes, one of the things that I remember jump, jumping out at me was like the article from Edward C. Curtis, and you yeah. write about it in your book. And as, as, as like a, as, a, as an American, I'm, I'm not exactly an American, but like I've been exposed to American rhetoric about how they think about Islam and Islamophobia. And I I think that it was interesting to see that he was talking about Islam not just as like like an ideology, but as a form of inspiration for people doing good things in the world. And Mm -hmm. he talked about like the coup, which it was it was in the coup in Trinidad, which which you can tell us probably more about it. But like it was so interesting to see a repositioning of Islam as a moral ideology and a moral sense of like inspiration whereby for people who are in the United States and thinking about people who are Muslim, part of it is like it combats, and you talk about it more explicitly than he does. It it sort of combats like notions of how we think about Muslims and it reveals the irony and like makes a clear argument about how this is like Islamophobia. Like people, it's just prejudice towards people who are different. What what do you have to say about that? 
I mean, that's a complex question that we could just keep talking about. Um, yeah. And, you know, doc Dr. Curtis's work is really fundamental or rather foundational in the field of thinking about um, Black Islam in the Americas and particularly um, in the United States. But, you know, I think, I, think, I think what I would say about that is I am really, I'll answer the question in a roundabout way, like I am really invested in decentering the place of the United States in the narrative of Islam in the Americas, um, because it is much older uh, than, you know, post 9-11. It is, you know, it begins with the story of these um, enslaved Moriscos or like quote unquote Moors from North Africa who, you know, uh, like joined Spanish and Portuguese voyages of conquest in the new world. Um, it starts from then and it starts from, um, you know, the transatlantic slave trade. So the origins of it are in the transatlantic slave trade and enslaved peoples in, in, in the Americas. So that is something that I, I definitely want to emphasize in my work. Um, it is not about the U.S. like studying Islam in the in the Americas is not just about the U.S. and the contemporary United States. It's bigger, and it's older. As a as a as a humanities kind of person over here, one of the things that that is also jumping out to me is how because in the in the in the in the Trinidad coup that took by the Jamiat Muslim Jamiat Muslimin is that they played like the, they played a playlist of Trinidad songs. Yeah. And it was interesting to me why music was important for their ways of making sense of the coup. Mm -hmm. And like on the other point of positioning like Trinidad and like the Caribbean Muslims into the global context of what it means to be a Muslim and who the Muslims are. Mm -hmm. there's, there's an interesting thing about like the literary practice of Islam of just writing and telling people stories, which which was interesting to me. How how do you think that was important in like your research and like what do you think it says about those particular people? Like, mm -hmm. what is it about music that makes it so important as a way of as a way of like talking about the Caribbean? You know, I mean, this is such an interesting question um, in thinking about like what exactly particularly characterizes Caribbean Islam. You know, like what makes it different from um, Islam elsewhere, what is unique to it, um, what is its focus, is that kind of thing. And music is one of them. Like that is such a Caribbean thing. Like there are play, like yeah, like in Jamaica, for example, um, you know, music is so heavily embedded in Jamaican politics that sometimes things happen in the national sphere that are explicitly what the music is laying out. Like the music is what influences. What I mean to say is that the, oftentimes it's the music that influences the politics in the Caribbean, as opposed to like the politics influencing the music, which is what we tend to think about it. Like it's just so embedded as a cultural form in the Caribbean that is impossible to ignore even when you're a Muslim. So a brief gloss for the for your listeners um, in terms of like what that coup is. So in 1990, um, there was an Islamic coup in the island, the Caribbean island of Trinidad, headed by um, Imam Yassin Abu Bakr and this Black Muslim group that drew some of its inspiration from Malcolm X and from other Black Muslim traditions um, in the United States, um, except their concerns were very local in terms of like, you know, 
like staging a coup against the Trinidad government. Um, but uh, this group called the Jamaat al-Muslimin, that, as I said, were predominantly Black Muslim. And that was a very, in 1990, a very, very, very crucial event, like in the history of the Caribbean and the Americas, because that is when I think Caribbean people and to some extent people in the Americas first realized that um, Muslims were even a thing in the Caribbean and like even existed in a, in a visible way in the Caribbean. Suddenly they were perpetrating government coups. Um, suddenly there was something that could be called or that people were calling like Islamic terrorism in the Caribbean, um, like even before people in the US were necessarily thinking about it that way. Um, and so I wanna, I wanna think about that event, but as, as you said, one interesting thing that they did when they staged this coup, um, in addition to taking over parliament in Trinidad, they also took over the national television and radio station and the leader of the coup, um, Imam Abu Bakr, who actually recently passed away, but I had the opportunity to interview him before he passed away for this book, um, especially, and he's, he's, he basically is like, the, like for a long time was thought of as like the Caribbean's number one Muslim terrorist, like the definitive Muslim terrorist. It was interesting talking to him. Um, but he was a, he's a big guy um, for like Calypsos, which is like these politicized, um, politicized Trinidadian um, songs that are really important in the celebration of carnival. So he considered himself like what in Trinidad they'd call like a Calypso king or a Calypso monarch. And like when he he started playing all these Calypso songs, these political, political Calypso songs on the radio during the coup, as you know, the subject of, of music in Islam is very fraught. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it depends on like theologically who you talk to, like what schools of scholar, you know, what schools of theology you talk to or you, you're talking about or like which scholars opinions or whose fatwas you follow or, you know, whatever um, to determine what it is exactly they think about music. And of course, as you know, people, Muslims often make a distinction between the permissibility of um, instrument only music versus like music that has vocals in it, which is sometimes a no. Um, anyway, so what's interesting about Caribbean Islam is that while some Muslims in the Caribbean do pay attention to those like more globalized debates over um, music, and there's a lot of controversy about it in this moment um, the, of the coup, that didn't bother them like at all. Like it was so clear that like music was had to be a part of like Trinidadian national identity and Caribbean pet like Caribbean island identity that of course they're going to take ownership of like the politicized music too and you know in order to like define themselves as Caribbean even though they are Muslim it involves them also incorporating music that's very interesting so my last question is how would you describe the importance of your research to people in Guyana, the Caribbean, mm -hmm. and even people on campus here, or even like to global Muslims who might be listening? Yeah, I'm actually gonna answer that question by reiterating a previous answer to one, of, to, to one thing you asked, which is that I really wanna, wanna um, de-center the place of 9-11 in our national and international narratives of what it means to be Muslim in the Americas and what, you know, what the history of Islam is in the Americas. It is true that in the United States, you can definitely, and then, you know, because the United States has, ex you know, exported its narratives about Islam to the, to the rest of the Americas and to the world. <clears throat> yes, there's a before and after. 
there is a before and after, but a lot of the trends that you can see in terms of how, you know, the American national discourse goes about like terrorism and so on, <clears throat> you can see those narratives building um, at the end of like the first Gulf War, or even as far back as like at the end of, uh, or like um, following the 1979 Iranian revolution, or even as far back as like 19th century in the United States, 19th century conceptions of like Orientalism and the way that like the American public in the 19th century was like agog reading the Arabian Nights um, tales. So I wanna, I wanna just um, like, stop prioritizing 9-11, right, as the only thing that we can talk about when we're talking about Islam and Muslims in the Americas. There is much more, and it is an older tradition. In fact, what should we, what we should be starting to talk about, what we should use as our starting point to talk about Islam in the Americas is the story of enslaved West African Muslims in the Americas. Like, start there, because that's where it starts. That's where the story starts. So if we can just do that, um, or, you know, start doing that, I would uh, feel like my work, um, you know, that, that I would feel like my work has some success in reaching people. Thank you. And for people who are listening, her book is called Far From Mecca, Globalizing of the Muslim Caribbean. And there's a lot of stuff there that I personally enjoyed reading about. So please make sure to listen. Thank, Thank you. you. Do you have any last things to say? No, no, I just wanted to um, thank you, Abdul, and your listeners for tuning in. Thank you.